From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins today. Glad that you are with us. You can find the show at TonyPerkins.com. This show and every show encourage you to do so. We also encourage you to download the Stand Firm app at the Apple Store and at Google Play. Wherever you get your apps, you can stay connected with this program, Washington Watch, as well as everything that the Family Research Council offers to you. Today on the program, we are going to go to North Carolina and talk to the sponsor of a preborn non-discrimination act bill that is now sitting on the desk of the governor. Will he sign it or not? We'll discuss it with the prime sponsor of the bill. Later in the program, Tony Perkins will join us as well uh, to have a great conversation as he is uh, out of the office clearly today. Then we will discuss uh, with George Barna. He will join us to discuss the latest release from his American Worldview Inventory that identifies the dramatic changes in long-term faith commitments. What does it mean for the church? What does it mean for the country? That's coming up later in the program. But now... On Sunday, Naftali Bennett, the leader of a Yamini party, excuse me, was sworn in as Israel's new prime minister after Israel's parliament, the Knesset, approved its new government by a razor-thin 60 to 59 vote. I, I Naftali Bennett, Naftali Bennett ben Jim Yaakov, son of Jim Yaakov of blessed memory, and Mirna Leah, may she have a long life, commit as the prime minister and as the future alternate prime minister to maintain allegiance to the state of Israel and to its laws to faithfully fulfill my role as Prime Minister and as the alternate Prime Minister and to fulfill the decisions of the Knesset. With me now to talk about the incoming government and what this could mean for Israel and the Middle East is Chris Mitchell, Middle East Bureau Chief for the Christian Broadcasting Network. Joining us now from Jerusalem. Chris, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Joseph. Well, tell us about Naftali Bennett. What do we need to know about this man? Well, Naftali Bennett is a religious man. He's probably the first uh, religious leader of uh, Israel. Uh, some people have since said since temple times. Uh, he's an observant Jew. He's also uh, had been in the uh, elite special forces for uh, for Israel. He was also an entrepreneur. He actually made millions uh, as a startup. Uh, and now he's uh, the new prime minister. It's uh, unusual, partly because uh, the Yamina party only has about six uh, seats in the 120-seat Knesset. Uh, but yet, because of uh, the political machinations here in uh, in Israel for the last couple of years, uh, it looks like he'll be the prime minister. How long he lasts, Joseph, is an open question right now. The uh, coalition is uh, very diverse, and uh, everyone uh, sort of has a veto in the uh, coalition government, but because of any one of these eight parties that make up a 61-seat uh, uh, coalition government, if they choose to leave, the government would fall and Israelis would go to elections one more time. Now, we mentioned in the open the razor-thin margin f- from which this coalition came together, 60 to 59. And it's people from the left, right, middle, kind of this cross-section of Israeli politics 
was the what united them? What brought them together? Was it were they united by a desire to simply replace Netanyahu, or were there other issues that they that brought them together? Well, Joseph, the number one issue that brought them all together was to oust Netanyahu. That was sort of the ideological glue that's really held them together and gotten them to this uh, to this moment. Uh, it could be. Uh, Naftali Bennett and Gidon Saar, they were former allies of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, for personal and political reasons, they didn't want to serve with him. Uh, there are others that uh, ideologically didn't want to serve with uh, Netanyahu. That would include uh, parties like Meretz and Labour that are to the left side of the Israeli political spectrum. Uh, the Ra'am, which is the Arab Islamist party, had actually been courted by Netanyahu at one time. He decided not to join what it would have been a right-wing government. But but uh, overall, uh, it was the uh, desire to oust uh, Benjamin Netanyahu that brought all these parties together. Very, very diverse across the political spectrum for the first time an Arab Islamist party in the uh, in the government and that was what brought them together somebody have said you know the first minute is uh, is they've been able to oust Netanyahu but how they govern on the second minute here on the uh, second day of their uh, government remains to be seen now you mentioned the Yamina party that Bennett comes from and it it's small it has uh, very little representation in the Knesset, but now uh, has the prime minister. Tell us about the Yamina party. What makes them distinct from the others? Well, it's a conservative right-wing party. Uh, it, it is a combination of both religious and uh, secular uh, Israelis. For example, uh, Ayelet uh, Shakid, she's the uh, number two member of Yamina. Uh, she's more of a secular Israeli, and uh, and yet Naftali Bennett is more of a religious uh, Israeli, so it's so, sort of diverse. Uh, I met uh, just a few days ago with the uh, Matan uh, Kahana. He's one of the uh, Yamina members. He's going to be head of religious affairs, uh, and he's going to try to reform some of the uh, the religious uh, observances here uh, in terms of Shabbat and uh, kosher uh, certification, uh, that sort of thing. So it's a bit of a diverse uh, party, but it is to the right. And if you look at Naftali Bennett, he's actually probably as to the right uh, as Benjamin Netanyahu, if more, if if not more to the right. So it's uh, that sort of tells you a little bit about Naftali Bennett. And uh, and yet he's uh, prime minister and yet he's part of a diverse uh, coalition that really did want to nef- uh, Benjamin Netanyahu to continue as prime minister. Now, tell us about the transition that Bennett has gone through from being an ally and an aide of Netanyahu to becoming his rival and ultimately unseating him. What's that relationship like? What led Bennett to go from being an aide to his political rival? Well, that describes uh, some of the politics right here, Joseph, in the last couple of years. It's really uh, maybe personal relationships that are a bit dysfunctional uh, between Naftali Bennett and uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu. The same goes through for Gidon Saar, who again, uh, he's the head of the New Hope Party. He's again in this coalition. He ran on a campaign that he did not want to serve with Benjamin Netanyahu. And at one time he was, uh, he had worked for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, And sadly, it seems that even though Israel is a right-wing country, uh, if you took all the conservative and the uh, right-wing parties, you'd probably have nearly 70 seats out of, out of 120 seats in the parliament. And yet, because of the uh, disagreements 
between uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and some of these other former allies, uh, they didn't want to serve with him. And that's that's really led to the kind of unusual coalition we have right now, probably the most diverse coalition in Israel's history. How is now former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu handling this? What's his response been? Well, his response has been he's vowing to uh, to unseat this, what he calls a dangerous government. Uh, he said that uh, last night at the Knesset. Uh, he, he vowed we will be back. Uh, he does have a lot of uh, tools in his kit, sort of as the leader of the opposition. And, uh, Joseph, we were doing a story earlier today for CBN News. And for the first time in 12 years, uh, when we put the lower third of the super on his uh, uh, his his speech, you know, he said leader of the opposition. It kind of was jarring that after 12 years, he's no longer prime minister. Uh, but he's going to fight. Uh, he's the leader of the opposition, and he's going to do what he can uh, to unseat and stop what he calls this dangerous government. Netanyahu has expressed some concern about what this is going to mean uh, for Iran and Israel's relationship with Iran. What should we expect uh, there? Well, I think, Joseph, his concern right now is Naftali Bennett uh, is not strong enough to stand up to the United States. Uh, United States, as we see the Biden administration uh, perhaps renewing the uh, Iranian nuclear deal. And uh, he says uh, that, uh, that Bennett cannot stand up to uh, U.S. President Joseph Biden. Naftali Bennett, uh, in his speech last night, said that Iran was the number one threat facing uh, Israel and that he would speak up uh, to the U.S. Uh, president or the, and the Biden administration. Uh, so that is probably the number one concern that outgoing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, feels about this government. And uh, Naftali Bennett feels like he can uh, stand up to the, uh, to the U.S. administration. Uh, and you see two things happening right now, Joseph. First of all, you see what's happening in Vienna and these indirect negotiations between the U.S. and Iran and the possible lifting of sanctions uh, against the Islamic Republic. And then you see... Uh, Iran, and this is uh, the words from U.S. Secretary Antony Blinken, they are galloping towards a nuclear weapon and getting very, very close to that. So you have these two dynamics going on. What Israel does in the meantime, will it have a preemptive strike? Will it continue to do what it can to maybe sabotage Iran's nuclear program Uh, is going to be probably the biggest question going on here in the Middle East in the weeks and months to come. Do you believe that the recent conflict with Hezbollah had anything to do with the results of this election? Because, again, there have been four elections where they tried to form a government, hadn't been able to. Now they finally got it done by a very narrow margin. Did that conflict play any role in the results of this election? Uh, I think it did, actually, uh, you know, because the um, uh, Hamas in the south and then what Hezbollah apparently was uh, was a lace allowing some rockets to fly out of Lebanon to uh, northern uh, <clears throat> northern Israel. One of the things that many people feel like this uh, this recent conflict uh, with Hamas was the fact that it wanted to undermine the uh, Abraham Accords and sort of uh, uh, distress or, or put a lot of pressure on many of these Sunni Arab nations that they would distance themselves uh, from uh, from Israel, uh, they, it has stood that particular test. 
but certainly that had a major impact in what was going on right now. One thing I would add, Joseph, is right now you have an Arab Islamist party called Ra'an, part of the coalition. Uh, if, if, if perhaps they re-enter another conflict with Hamas, it remains to be seen how long he will be part of the coalition. How are the Israeli people responding to this? Are they relieved? Are they nervous? What's the reaction on the street there? Well, I would say it depends on who you ask. Uh, you know, Israel is a very much a divided country in some ways like the United States is. Uh, you know, some people are calling the miracle and a miracle of Israel's democracy that you can have this diverse coalition together and trying to bring a healing to the country. Uh, on the other hand, some people are, even last night in the Knesset, some of the members were calling uh, Naftali Bennett a criminal and a liar. Uh, he had promised, and actually he, he uh, signed this declaration on television, that he wouldn't uh, ever serve with Yair Lapid, and now uh, they're serving together in the coalition. So I think there's a very, very divisive atmosphere here in, uh, in Israel right now. There's really a need for a lot of healing and reconciliation. But the way this government is going right now, I would say it depends on who you ask. Some people think it is, uh, is a miracle and, uh, and great for Israel. Others are very concerned about the way that it uh, could undermine Israel's security, both internally and throughout the region. Chris Mitchell, Middle East Bureau Chief for Christian Broadcasting Network. Thank you so much for your time, as always. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Joseph. Stay with us. Coming up after the break, we are going to go to North Carolina and we're going to talk about the legislation sitting on the governor's desk that would prohibit abortions on the basis of a race and Down syndrome. Will the governor sign it? We'll talk about it next. Stay with us. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, 
family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch, just back home, sitting in for Tony today. We have just got final word that uh, Joyce Kravick is, may not be able to join us. North Carolina's Democratic Governor Roy Cooper has until this Sunday to sign or veto a bill that prohibits the performance of an abortion solely because of race, sex, or presumed presence of Down syndrome of an unborn child. House Bill 453 in North Carolina, it's called the Human Life Non-Discrimination Act, was passed Thursday in the state Senate by a 27 to 20 vote margin. And now here to discuss this bill is Mary Zock, who is the director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Mary, thanks for stepping in last minute. I know that uh, Senator uh, Kravick is uh, busy saving lives, I understand, in the state of North Carolina. So thanks for stepping in for us. Thanks on for this. having me today. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about Prenda, what these bills are doing, why it matters in North Carolina as well as every other state. So the Prenda bills, as you said, ban abortion on the basis of some sort of discrimination, race, sex, or presence of a prenatally diagnosed disability. My older sister, Marita, has multiple special needs, one of which would be a prenatally diagnosable disability. So this bill is near and dear to my heart, something we see 67% of babies prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. That's 67%. It's an overwhelming amount. And anyone who has met a person with Down syndrome knows what a gift these people are to our society. It is essential that the government, that the governor sign this bill today. And, and the status of this bill, for, for those who might be in North Carolina um, and, and personally invested in this, we, and we're going to encourage people, of course, reach out to the governor. It passed the House. There were, in fact, six Democrats, and, and you know, on, on life issues, that's, that's unusual these days. Six Democrats voted for it in the House, and then it just passed the Senate on a 27 to 20 margin. The, uh, the governor now has until Sunday to uh, act on this bill, and, and Governor Roy Cooper is a Democrat, and so there's going to be a lot of political pressure to, um, to veto this legislation. What would you say is the number one reason he should sign this bill into law? He needs to stand up for the little guy. He needs to protect life. You know, we know Planned Parenthood disproportionately targets people who are, who are African American. We know that Planned Parenthood promotes the, they, they fight against these bills because they, 
they're fine with aborting people with Down syndrome. These are the people that we need to speak up for. There's, they don't have a voice when they're in the womb. We need to be that voice for them. The governor needs to be that voice for them. An interesting thing about this bill in North Carolina is there is, per, there is currently a, a non-discrimination bill in, in North Carolina that prohibits babies from being aborted because of their gender. So you can't just abort a baby because it, it's, a, it's a girl or a boy. This would add um, disabilities, a, pre, a diagnosed um, dis disability, and it would also add race. Do you think that is relevant in, in, the, in the climate that we're dealing with right now? Race is such a hot topic. This essentially says you can't abort a baby just because it will be white or black or whatever race it is. Why do you think that matters also? I think it's certainly relevant. You know, Planned Parenthood's CEO came out and said, hey, Margaret Sanger was racist. She instituted racist and eugenicist policies. But what, what, the, what Planned Parenthood failed to acknowledge was that they're continuing those policies today, that they're targeting African-Americans in the womb. And we are at a place in society where people are recognizing discrimination is wrong no matter when it takes place. And it's especially wrong when it kills a child. That's exactly right. And what it, what is your sense, and I know you're not in North Carolina, but what's your sense of what public opinion is on these bills? Because you can slice the abortion issue so many different ways. Am I pro-life? Am I pro-abortion? Uh, rape and incest exceptions. Um, what is public opinion on the issue of whether a child should be able to be aborted because of its race or because of its a, a diagnosed disability? It is interesting. If you ask someone, hey, do you think that we should be allowed to abort a little boy or little girl because that person has Down syndrome? No one says yes, right? No one, no one responds, yeah, we need fewer people with Down syndrome because everyone knows the gift that those people are, the joy that they bring, the love that they have to share. Right. The same's true when we ask the question, should you be allowed to abort a baby because he or she is white or black? No one says yes. Now, we know Planned Parenthood, though, says yes. And, and it really does come down to a genetic test for being born, doesn't this? Because the idea that you should be able to abort, abort a baby because it has tested positive for Down syndrome. Now, keep in mind, those are often incorrect diagnoses. And we've heard many stories of, of a baby who was misdiagnosed where the parents went and had, had birth, and it was a perfectly healthy child. But even if it's a correct diagnosis, the idea of being a country that gives a genetic test for somebody in order to be able to live, that's not someplace we want to go. No, it's certainly not. And I can tell you, my sister Marita, she does have an extra piece of a chromosome. You know what that extra chromosome does? It makes her better at loving everyone. It makes her better about caring about people and about showing interest in people. If you have a conversation with her, you are the most important person in the room whether you are actually the most important person or actually the least important. She doesn't care. She's there to focus on you. That's what that extra piece of a chromosome does. Yeah. And, and sometimes the things that we, that we broadly interpret as, as, uh, as weaknesses are actually strengths, aren't they? Absolutely. And loving is the yeah. greatest strength. And that's what, that's what these people who society has deemed not worthy of life that's exactly what they're the best at. So what would you encourage people in North Carolina to do? 
Today, call your governor. Get on the phone. Give him a call. Tell your legislators we want this bill signed today. That's that's exactly right. And and for those of you who are watching, you might be in North Carolina. You can go to frc.org/prenda. That's frc dot org slash prenda and you can get information about this issue broadly but specifically you can get information about how to respond how to contact your governor how to contact legislators but though in north carolina that's over but contact the governor roy cooper needs to hear from you and he needs to hear that you want him to sign this because the reality is there's going to be so much political pressure encouraging him to veto this uh you your voice needs to be heard over there so mary zock thank you so much for pinch it and stepping in at the last minute really appreciate everything you do for life thanks so much for having me and so again go to frc.org slash prenda and make sure you contact governor roy cooper if you are in north carolina it's an important important issue coming up after the break we are going to talk to Tony Perkins. He's out of the office today, but he's going to step out of a meeting to join us to talk about what's going on uh, on religious freedom. And we will visit with him next. Stay with us. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Don't miss your opportunity to stand with FRC against the left's agenda, advance truth, and defend freedom. From now until June 30th, you can double your gift by taking advantage of our $1 million challenge match. Help FRC continue championing biblical values in Washington, D.C. and finish our fiscal year strong. Call 800 225 Four zero zero eight, or visit TonyPerkins.com to double your impact today. And I'm filling in for Tony today. 
and tomorrow because he'll be in meetings until Wednesday. But he just stepped out of one of his meetings to join us now to talk about some of the things he has been working on over at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where he serves as the vice chair. Tony, so glad that you could join us for a moment. Well, Joseph, thanks so much for filling in. I appreciate you uh, filling in for me today and tomorrow, as you uh, mentioned, uh, the uh, U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom meeting uh, today and tomorrow. Actually, first time we've met uh, in person since the uh, coronavirus, so it's uh, good to see all the fellow commissioners as we uh, take a look at what's happening around the world as it pertains to religious freedom. Yeah, and, and tell us, what are you guys most concerned about right now globally? Well, there's a lot of concerns. Last week we held a uh, hearing on Nigeria, virtual hearing, uh, but concerned, uh, we've continue to be concerned about what's happening in in Nigeria. Our concerns there are numerous. In the northern part of the country, the state courts are still charging individuals with blasphemy and sentencing them uh, to death. Uh, We see that uh, there are uh, frequent attacks on houses of worship by non-state actors, but they do so with uh, impunity. We've got Boko Haram that's operating there. Uh, ISWAP, uh, which is the uh, state in West Africa province, uh, Islamic State in West Africa province, uh, they're the ones actually uh, holding uh, Leah Sherabu, who is a they've uh, been holding her for about four years. She's a young Christian girl that I've been advocating for in our program called Prisoners of Conscience, Religious Prisoners of Conscience. Uh, so uh, Nigeria clearly an area of of concern, but China. Uh, is a uh, factor is very prominent uh, in our concern because what we're seeing now, Joseph, is what, uh, you know, we, we know bad things are happening in China, but they're using their influence in other countries. And so that's why we've got to uh, continue to stay focused on China and call them out for not only what's happening within their own borders, but what they're exporting. In Africa, there are a number of nations that have been hot spots of religious freedom concern. What makes Nigeria unique in that neighborhood? That's a really good question, Joseph. Nigeria is the most populous country. I mean, about 200 million people, a little over 200 million. Uh, it is uh, narrowly uh, divided uh, from a religious standpoint, almost half the country being Islamic in orientation, half in Christian. And the, the, the violence there and the uh, the issues that are taking place are, are quite complex, but religion factors into it. It's not the only issue. There's a scarcity of resources. You've got farmers versus herders. Uh, you've got a number of, uh, of issues there. But here's the, the biggest concern, and this is what many of the experts are saying about Nigeria and the reason that last year uh, or the last few years we've been calling for the uh, the State Department, the administration, to recognize them as a country of particular concern. Um, and last year that actually happened. The State Department finally designated Nigeria as a country of particular concern, meaning that they have uh, ongoing egregious uh, religious freedom violations. And the reason it's, it's a concern is Nigeria being such a large country in the African continent that it's going to have an impact on all of Africa and even into Europe if we see what some of the experts predict where 
we we could have another like Rwanda where you have uh, this uh, genocide taking place, refugees fleeing. We already have refugees leaving. But that could destabilize the entire African continent uh, and, as I said, even into Europe. So this is, a, this is a concern of what is happening. And religion is a major factor in what we see unfolding in Nigeria. Now, you mentioned that the last time the commission got together was during the last administration. And because of COVID, there's been a a long absence, at least in personal meetings. Is there any sense that the change in administration is going to affect the work that you guys are involved with? Well, it won't affect our work. We're a nine-member bipartisan commission appointed by the leadership of Congress and by uh, the the president. So a total of nine. And it is, uh, you know, as I said, bipartisan is probably one of the the few, if not only, into bipartisan entities that actually operates in a true spirit of bipartisanship. It is because we focus on one issue and one issue only. It doesn't mean we don't have areas of dif- different disagreement. Disagreement we do, but we work through those issues. Now, the 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 question with the administration is: we make recommendations to Congress, to the President, and to the State Department. It's up to them whether or not they follow those recommendations. The last administration aggressively followed uh, and took those recommendations to heart. We hope this one will do the same. Well, Tony, we are certainly glad you are there giving input uh, because the current administration is definitely going to need your input. Thank you so much for your time and stepping away and uh, sharing with us today. Thank you. All right, Joe. Good to be with you. And that, of course, was Tony Perkins, who will be back here with you live and in person at the end of the week. Uh, starting Wednesday, in, in fact. So stay with us. Uh, what is the changing landscape of religion in America? George Barna has released a new study that has some surprising details that have some concerning implications for our country whole uh, on a lot of levels. And we're going to discuss that with George Barna right after the break. Stay with us. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality 
by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org slash Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. According to the latest release from this year's American Worldview Inventory, the dramatic transformation of America's worldview away from biblical truth is ushering in the most rapid and radical cultural upheaval our nation has ever experienced. It used to be that more than nine out of ten Americans associated with the same faith, Christianity, and that religious alignment brought with it common views about morality, purpose, family, lifestyle, citizenship, and values. But my next guest points out that the new America we see emerging is radically different, demographically, politically, relationally, and spiritually. With me now to talk about the latest findings and what they mean for America is the man who conducted the survey, George Barna, Senior Research Fellow with the Center for Biblical Worldview here at FRC. George, welcome back to the program. Hi, Joseph. Good to be with you again. Thank you. Well, it's good to be with you. In your release of this study, you said that this represents the most rapid and radical cultural upheaval our nation has ever experienced. That's very strong language. Tell me why you, you said it that way. Well, when you look at all the different things that are happening at the same time in terms of the decline of Christianity, the influence of other faiths and even no faith, the uh, public's feelings about the value of religion in life, the impact of all of these kinds of changes on our values, our morals, our relationships, our lifestyle habits and routines, all of those things are being affected. We look at demographically how things are moving. We see that the changes are coming fast and furious in terms of how all of these things are aligned to really redefine the way that American thinks and behaves based on spiritual perspectives. So when you look over the history of our nation, you find that, yeah, there have been significant changes in the past, but I don't think that we've seen the quantity of change barreling down the freeway the way it is right now. And, and that's how we came to that conclusion. Now, you probably weren't surprised to, to learn that things are changing. That's something that's, that's, that's 
obvious in some senses. Is there anything about the findings from the study that actually surprised you? Well, I think one of the things that I am a little surprised by is the significant increase in the Muslim faith in America. You know, when I started measuring that 30, almost 40 years ago, there was virtually no presence of Islam in America. Now we see that that has been growing slowly, but significantly. And so it's no longer just an asterisk in the reports. Now it's a uh, significant faith group. I mean, uh, right now in America, it appears that the number of Muslims here outnumber uh, how many Jews we have in America. And it appears that that's almost a two-to-one ratio now, where we've got just about twice as many Muslims as we do Jews. So you look at something like that, that's pretty significant. And I think one of the things that surprised me, I'm in some ways like a book that I wrote years ago, The Frog in the Kettle, because I work with this stuff every day, sometimes I lose track of the long-term effects. But when I went back and looked at our data from 1991, then went every decade, 2001, 2011, now 2021, and looked at the changes in some of the key factors that we're constantly measuring, you know, whether that has to do with uh, belief in the existence of God, people's perspectives on the Bible, uh, whether or not they consider themselves to be Christian, uh, what they think is going to happen to them after they die, and whether or not people have a biblical worldview. You look at the combination of those factors, which give you a pretty good sense of the heartbeat of America spiritually, and the changes there are so dramatic that uh, the the size of those changes, the magnitude of the shift, uh, even surprised me a little bit. I want to get into some of the specific groups that you've had findings about. And you just mentioned the growth in the Muslim population in, in the country from kind of nominal to now about 3% of the public, which is, as you mentioned, about twice the Jewish community. Do you have a sense of whether that is strictly a function of immigration? Are people converting? What, what's led to that growth? Yeah, I mean, the survey wasn't designed to take a look at that, so I'm not sure. But it, it would appear to me that really the, the primary reason has to do a lot with immigration. Uh, as we look at some of the other attitudinal things that we're seeing here, some of the language issues and whatnot, uh, I think that immigration has a, a large part to play in that growth. Another group that you studied in this is the Hispanic community. And, and you noted that they are about as about half as Catholic as they were about 30 years ago, if I, if I may generalize. Tell us more about what you found in the Hispanic community. Yeah, of course, we've been tracking them. They're the, the fastest growing, one of the uh, certainly the largest uh, ethnic group in America. And so we looked at that particular group. And again, I went back and compared the data over the last 30 years. Back in 1991, you had 59%, about 6 out of 10 Hispanics, who associated with the Catholic Church. That dropped just a little bit in the 10 years after that, but then it dropped more significantly by 2011. But then you get to where we are now, and what you find is that it's dropped from 59% of Catholics, considering or, or Hispanics, considering themselves to be Catholic back in 1991, dropping all the way down to 28% today. And there are a couple of significant relationships in the data regarding faith and Hispanics. One of those is the fact that this is the first time 
as far as we know in America's history, that there are now more Protestant Hispanics than there are Catholic Hispanics, not by much, but we seem to have passed that that point at which now there are more Protestants uh, in the Latino community. The other thing that's really interesting and troubling is the fact that you also have more Hispanics in the don'ts category. Now, we can talk about that category because that's also very significant in terms of the spiritual shift in America. But these are people who say that they don't know if God exists, they don't care if God exists, or they don't believe that he exists. So these are essentially the God deniers. And what we've got in the Hispanic community is now there are more God deniers, more people in the don'ts category than who associate with the Catholic Church. And it's just about equal to the number of Hispanics who associate with Protestant churches. So some really dramatic shakeups. Again, it's a, a by a tenfold increase from 1991 to 2021 that you've seen the don'ts grow in the Hispanic world. Does that suggest to you that assimilation into American culture is kind of an assimilation into secularism now? Yeah, and it, it goes along with one of the things that I tell a lot of people, which is that, frankly, the culture is impacting the Christian church and the Christian faith more than the Christian church or the Christian faith is impacting the culture. And I think that would probably be exhibit A in that process when people come here. Remember, so much of the growth in the Hispanic community comes from immigration. What you're finding is they're coming here, they want to be American, they want to fit in, and so they're trying to get a read on what does that mean. And for a huge portion of them, one-third of them right now, what that means is that you don't worry about God, you don't worry about faith, you don't worry about churches, you don't worry about the Bible, you live your life in ways that are designed to make you feel good, feel happy, and feel accepted. One of the other findings in your study that I found interesting was the fact that while the number of don'ts are increasing, there appears to be increasing openness to reincarnation. And it looks like 9% actually believe that they will be reincarnated. And when it came to millennials, 51% of millennials said that they thought that was a real possibility. How can it be that as people are moving away from religion, at least theoretically, they seem to be more and more open to really new age ideas like reincarnation? Well, I think some of it has to do with the fact that the driving force in America today is people say that their purpose on earth is to be happy. And so they look at something like reincarnation and they may be thinking to themselves, you know, I'm not getting everything right. Everything hasn't worked out. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a God, maybe there's not one, but maybe at least if I get reincarnated, I get a second shot. I can redo this. I, you know, I kind of get a mulligan on life. And so they're looking at at the future as, you know, maybe it's going to turn out better because the prevailing notion is when you get reincarnated, it, it's kind of an upgrade. And so their thoughts here may well be that that's going to be a positive thing. The other thing that's amazing to me is that even among a large share of the born-again Christian population in America, now remember, these aren't people who just call themselves born again the way we measure it. It's what do you believe is going to happen to you after you die? These are people who say, I know that I will go to heaven or spend eternity in God's presence only because I confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. About a third of those people who have accepted Christ as their Savior 
are saying, yeah, reincarnation is a real possibility for me. So there's an amazing amount of garbage in the theology, even among Christians who pastors tell us are, as a category, the backbone of the church in America. This may well be part of the reason why the culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. Perhaps we need to get back to some catechisms because it does seem strange that you could be a faithful Bible-believing Christian in, in your attestations and still, uh, and still be open to the idea of reincarnation. There's another finding that you, 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 you produced that only 2% of Americans believe they're going to hell. Is this because only 2% of Americans believe in hell or that everybody else thinks that they're just they're good enough that they're going to end up someplace better? It's a combination of both. I mean, most people in America don't seem to believe that there is such a thing as hell. But the other reality is that most people, remember, you know, better than 7 out of 10 Americans right now think people are basically good. And, and that's their perspective on all of the population. The reality is when they talk about themselves, they think they're better than other people. And so for the most part, they're thinking, you know, I'm, I know deep down I'm a good person. I know deep down that I always try to make the best choices. I know deep down that I really try to do my best unless it's really inconvenient. And so you've got this mentality where people are thinking, if there is a God, I can't imagine that he's not going to be able to understand who I really am, what kind of a person I truly am at heart. And he'll understand, he'll forgive, he'll accept. You know, I'm going to be part of the people that are with him if he exists. I think that's a lot of the way that Americans seem to be thinking this through. Hell really isn't on their agenda. So if hell isn't on their agenda, but they're increasingly open to reincarnation and the idea that they're come back as things that are better, do you think there, we're, we're discovering evidence that people are just kind of um, determining that what they want is in fact how things are? They don't really want a strict set of moral codes, so they're going to reject God as kind of this authority that we have to be surrendered to. But we like the idea that there's not going to be any punishment and that things are just going to get better for us because we have good intentions. You know, Joseph, that fits exactly with the way that we find people putting their worldview together. Uh, we've talked previously about the fact that 88% of Americans don't have a pure worldview of any type. What they do is they cut and paste elements of different worldviews to which they've been exposed, and they customize their own worldview. And so part of that would have to do with what they think about life, what they think about life after death, what they think about God, what they think about sin, what they think about eternal punishment. All of these things are part of that calculus that they're working through. And as they're exposed to Marxism and secular humanism and postmodernism and moralistic therapeutic deism, all these different worldviews, they're taking a look at them, they're listening very carefully, and they're saying, no, nah, I don't like that, but I really like this thing that they believe. I'm going to buy into that. And before you know it, you've got something where, you know, close to 7 out of 10 Americans call themselves Christian. But when, as we do in our surveys, you start to enumerate the different things they believe, you find out that it's not biblical Christianity at all. It's their own concocted version of Christianity and frankly, in America today, more and more, the term Christianity is a generic term, meaning 
I'm spiritual in some way or means or fashion. And you've probably heard from some surveys, and we've looked at it too, uh, you know, where a majority of Americans say that they are spiritual, but they're not religious, meaning that I believe what I want to believe. I had a set of beliefs that are important to me, but I don't necessarily belong to or buy into the full agenda of any given church or faith sect. And so that's a lot of what's redefining how people think about faith and spirituality in America. They'll be the final arbiters of what they think is going to be useful and helpful to them. George, we've got about a minute left. What are the implications for us culturally if this trend continues? Well, essentially what we're doing is moving away from Judeo-Christian morals and values and lifestyles. And so all of the things that America as a democratic republic with its constitution are based on, they're falling by the wayside. Uh, when you look at many of the institutions that we have in our country, they rely upon people buying into that kind of a moral perspective. And if that moral perspective isn't there, that's part of the reason perhaps why institutions are struggling so much in America today that shared consensus of beliefs and values no longer exists. We're moving into a very different culture where people are saying, I don't want the Bible, I don't want God, and I don't want church. George Barna, Senior Fellow, FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview, thank you so much for your time today and all your work. Thanks, Joseph. Good to be with you. And we will continue to track this because there is nothing more important in a country that's built on the premise that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. If we deny the creator, we deny the basis of our rights, we deny the basis of our freedom, that makes them all the more vulnerable, and that's something we all should care about. We'll talk about it more next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.